the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Revelation. seduce them with sexual immorality, you will defeat them from within. That's what Balak does. And it works. The doctrine of Balaam is basically the doctrine of immorality, seduction, and greed. For a prophet, Balaam encouraged King Balak to introduce sexual immorality into the ranks of the Israeli army, and you will defeat them from within. You can oppress and enslave a people, but when they maintain their identity and values, you've only conquered them on a surface level. It's when you eat away at those things and get them to start compromising on who they are and what they believe in that you truly have conquered them. Satan has relied heavily on this tactic to render many Christians ineffective. As Pastor Gary will challenge us in today's message, We need to stand strong in our identity as the sons and daughters of God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Revelation chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The spiritual climate of the city of Pergamos was polytheistic. Again, this is the the, the tail end of the Roman Empire. There was a large 40-foot statue of the Greek god Zeus situated on top of an 800-foot high hill in the midst of the city. It was unearthed by a German engineer by the name of Karl Heumann in 1878, and that statue of Zeus is displayed today in East Berlin. The worship in that city at that time, being polytheistic, included gods and goddesses like Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of the pagan god of medicine and healing. Remember, the idol of Asclepius was uh, a serpent on a staff. It is still often used as a symbol in the medical community today. But that serpent on a staff might be one of the reasons why Jesus addresses this city as a place where Satan dwells, kind of the image of the serpent on a staff. And the the... The uh, Church of Pergamos represents, on the timeline of church history, the state church. Again, these two major bookend events in 312 AD, Constantine made Christianity a state religion, and, and he permeated it with pagan customs and practices. So it ended up looking more Roman than it did Christian And then this time period ends uh, around 606 BC with the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as I mentioned three months ago when we were last together, 
It sounds on the surface like a wonderful thing for Christianity to have elevated status and protected status as the state religion. Constantine uh, writes that he had this personal epiphany where he saw a cross on fire as he was marching out to war, and he heard the words, uh, in this sign conquer, and so he started to advance Christianity uh, in a way that you, you don't really want to do. Uh, You never want to advance Christianity or any religion, frankly, by the sword. And this is the kind of thing that he did. And then he required everybody in the Roman Empire, you got to be a Christian. I saw this vision, so he says, and I'm a Christian now, and so you have to be a Christian if I'm a Christian. And so everybody had to become a Christian. Now, what kind of genuine Christian would that make? Because it's quite the opposite of the way it used to be. If you were a Christian prior to Constantine becoming emperor, you were persecuted. Now, you have favored and protected status. So in the one sense, okay, you're not going to die for your faith. But on the other hand, there's going to be people converting to Christianity because it's the mandated state religion. It's not based on a heart relationship with Jesus. It just becomes this mandated ritualistic religious experience. That's what's happening in this time period of the church. And so Jesus comes along, uh, speaking of, of historically... Jesus comes along and he has some things to say to this church. And so as we've already read it, here's basically the summary of what we just read there. The title of Jesus in this letter is uh, him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So you can, you can tell that you know, he begins here by making this reference to the fact that he's coming in judgment. I mean, you know, that's, it's, not a, it's not a friendly Jesus when he's coming with a two-edged sword. Uh, that, that's just not an image of, you know... Gentle Jesus, that is an image of Jesus who's coming as righteous judge. And he commends them. He begins with a commendation here. He commends that they have, he says, you have not, he says, I give this to you. You've not renounced your faith, even though your friend Antipas was martyred for his faith. Now, there were pockets of, of persecution. Overall, it was a protected status. But what I find marvelous about what Jesus is saying here is the fact that he calls out a guy by name, Antipas. And there's no other reference anywhere else in the Bible to this guy. Jesus calls out this guy by name as a model of someone who did not renounce his faith in the face of death, Antipas. And then he commends the rest of the church because he says, if there was a time that you would have hightailed it out and denied the faith because one of your friends was killed for his faith, you didn't do that. So I commend you for that. But I marvel at the fact that this guy by name is mentioned by Jesus. Just, it's just so intriguing to me because it's a reminder that he sees you by name. And he sees when you stand for him, when you don't deny him, when you Take whatever heat for your faith. He sees that. He takes note of it. And he even commends this one guy by name and then the whole church because they didn't run when this guy was martyred for his faith. But he has a complaint. And the complaint is basically a marriage of the church and the world. Now, again, as I mentioned a few months ago when we were in this last, Pergamos is from the root word gamos. Gamos is a Greek word that is the root word for marriage. We talk about being faithful to one person, that's monogamy, monogamos. If, if you have multiple, you know, if you're married to multiple people, that's polygamy, polygamos. 
So the root of this is marriage, gamos. It's an actual city, but, you know, Jesus is using it as a way of illustrating, by virtue of the name of the city, the problem in the church, which is that the church has married itself to the culture. And it, instead of staying distinct from the culture, to be a distinct witness to the culture, it has married, the church has, has married itself with the culture. This is a problem. And it exists today. Where churches sadly have married themselves to the world. They've adopted the worldly customs. They've adopted a cultural viewpoint on social issues. And they've just basically become very identical to the world. Well, the world thinks this way, so the church is going to think this way. The world acts this way, so the church is going to... And, and I, I don't know under, under what, um, you know, banner the, the idea evolved that the church needs to look like the world, perhaps because somebody erroneously thought that if the church can somehow look a little bit more like the world, it can win the world. That is a fallacy. That'll never work. If you just end up looking like the very people you're supposed to hopefully rescue with the hope that you have, and you look just like them, what, what impetus do they have to want what you have? Because you look just like they do. Amen. And so the church has to be distinct the church has to be distinct in order to be able to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ as something unique and something desirable and something attainable to all who would believe and receive. But if we end up just getting absorbed in the culture, looking too much like the culture, accepting the social mores of the culture, then we're not really advancing the gospel. We've just become absorbed with the culture and we've become married to the world. And so this is the rebuke here. Jesus is saying yeah, there's this marriage here. And he, and he calls out these two particular doctrines. He mentions there in verse uh, 14 the doctrine of Balaam, and in verse 15 the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You see that there in your Bible. So, he, so Jesus has an issue with some things here that, is going, that are going on in the church here. And the first thing is this, this idea of the, the doctrine of Balaam. And, and the word doctrine here is didache in, in Greek, which, which means correct teaching. So they have embraced what should be a, a correct teaching. They've embraced a false teaching, a, a didache, a doctrine of Balaam. What exactly is the doctrine of Balaam? In the margin of your Bible, you can just write down Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22 gives us the story of Balaam. He's a peculiar person. He is an occultist. Uh, but he's also seen in Scripture as, quote, a prophet, and, and he's, he's a very unusual guy because there's some places you can read in the story in Numbers 22 where it seems like he's a guy who's trying to honor God, and then there's other parts where you look at it and he goes, well, clearly clearly this guy is an occultist, and he, and he doesn't even really hold to the true faith of, of the God of the Bible. So he's a very odd person that Balak, the king of the Moabites, hires in order to try to curse God's people. So here's what's going on. The Moabites are perennial enemies of the Israelites. Balak is the king of the Moabites, and he hears about this prophet by the name of Balaam, and he hires Balaam to come and to curse God's people, the Israelites, because Balak, as king of the Moabites, realizes I can't defeat the Israelites because they've got God on their side, but unless, but maybe I can curse the Israelites and then I can defeat them. So he hires this guy named Balaam and Balaam comes. It's a long story. I'm going to reduce to just a couple of minutes. Balaam comes and Balak hires him, curse the Israelites. 
And so Balaam gets up at a place where he can see the Israelite army in a valley, and Balaam begins to utter curses over them. But whenever he does, and he opens his mouth, God puts words of blessing in his mouth to bless the people of God. So every time he's just like, all right, all right, you little, and all of a sudden comes out these wonderful things of praise and glory to God over the Israelites. Now, can you imagine if that were to happen to you when you're in traffic? And somebody cuts you off and you, and you roll down the window. You're just like, you little, hey, Jesus loves you. God bless you. I love you too. What? That's the kind of thing that's happening here. Balaam opens his mouth to start cursing them. And instead, God floods his tongue with words of blessing. So he ends up blessing. And Balak, the king who hired him, is just like, I didn't give you money to do that. I gave you money to curse these people. Why are you blessing them? He's like, I can't help it. God is putting these blessing words on my mouth. And so after several attempts at this, Balaam realized, I'm not going to be able to curse God's people because every time I open my mouth, God gives me a word of blessing. So he says this to Balak, here's what you need to do. It's not going to work for me to continue to open up my mouth. What you need to do is you need to take your own Moabite women who are, they're they're pagan women, they worship idols, they have no sense of moral standards or what is right before God. Balaam says, I want you to take your Moabite women and let them go into the camp of the Israelite army and seduce the men into sexual immorality. And when you seduce them with sexual immorality, you will defeat them from within. That's what Balak does. And it works. The doctrine of Balaam is basically the doctrine of immorality, seduction, and greed. For a prophet, Balaam encouraged King Balak to introduce sexual immorality into the ranks of the Israeli army, and you will defeat them from within. And so therefore, the doctrine of Balaam represents moral compromise, idolatry, and greed. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is the other thing that he mentions in verse 15 that Jesus has an issue with. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was something actually mentioned back in the letter to the church at Ephesus. They were commended for not tolerating the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But now here at the church of Pergamos, they're being rebuked. They're guilty for accepting the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What exactly is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Well, there's a split view on this. Nobody knows for sure. Some believe that it is a doctrine that came as the result of Nicholas, who was one of the original deacons mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And church tradition says, we don't, know this, we don't know this biblically for a fact, but church tradition says that Nicholas perverted the doctrine of grace, saying that people could do whatever they wanted as long as they prayed and as long as they sought God Uh, God would give them grace. And so there was the thought that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the followers of Nicholas who taught that kind of a compromised way of living. But probably the more likely uh, understanding of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans comes from the Greek understanding of the word Nicolaitans, and this plays right into what's happening in the timeline of church history as the Roman Catholic Church begins to emerge from this particular state-mandated religion. And here's what it is. Nicolaitans is from two Greek words, nikeo, which is the verb that means to conquer. Nikeo. The noun form is nike. We, we say nike, which means victory or conquer. Nikeo, meaning to conquer, and leos, meaning the laity. Nikeo, leos. 
to conquer the laity. The idea of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is when church leadership began to lord authority over the church members, otherwise known as the laity, so that the clergy held power and dominance over the laity. And Jesus would rebuke this for two reasons. Number one, he, he never modeled that kind of leadership. Jesus' leadership was servant leadership. He was always opposed to a dominant kind of heavy-handed uh, supreme kind of, you know, lording over authority. So he, he, number one, he, he certainly didn't model that. He modeled servant leadership. And number two, he taught against it. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, it says, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the problems that happened when the state-run church kind of morphed into, historically, the Roman Catholic Church, there became a great divide between clergy and laity. And clergy, the papal authority, became something in the Roman Catholic Church that's still to this day. By the way, in talking through this, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, but listen, listen, this might be some of your tradition. This might be some of your background. Those of you watching online, you're like, is he going to shred the Roman Catholic Church? I'm not, I'm not going to shred anybody. I'm just going to give you factual, historical commentary. And the fact of the matter is that the papal authority set itself up equal to Scripture. And that is usurping the authority of God. And that is positioning the Pope, and that is positioning church leadership above, lording it over the laity, and this is a problem. This is a problem in in the Roman Catholic Church, where there is this separation. You as the people only get to God through me as the priest. That's the idea behind Roman Catholicism, that you, you don't get to go to God directly, I stand in the place of Christ, a priest would say, as the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ. That's why I get to absolve you of your sins. That's why you have to confess your sins to me. I stand in that place as the intermediary between you and God. It is just frankly unbiblical. Because the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And whenever man puts himself between fellow man and God, you have just now usurped the only place that Jesus is supposed to have. And so this lording authority, this, this, um, um, this, this, you know, kind of the structural religious ritual system is the very thing that he's speaking against here when it comes to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, he does end up rewarding. He mentions here rewards. If you notice at the end of the, of the letter here, he says to the overcomers at Pergamos, he promises two things. He promises some of the hidden manna. And he promises a white stone with a new name written on it that only Jesus knows. So first, he mentions here hidden manna. What exactly is a reference here to the hidden manna? Well, this represents Jesus himself. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, remember in our I Am series on Sunday mornings, one of the I Am statements Jesus made was, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 6, when he makes that commentary, he is speaking in the context of how 
the Jewish people who rejected him talked about how they had the bread from heaven that their forefathers gave them, referring to manna. And Jesus says, I, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. I mean, what your forefathers ate in the desert sustained them. It was given to them by the hand of God, but they all still perished. However, if you feed on me, in other words, if you have relationship with me, then you'll never perish in the sense that you, you have everlasting life. Your body may die, but your spirit lives forever. So the hidden manna is really a representative of Jesus himself. And he's basically saying the prize for overcoming is me. That's what he's saying, that you can have eternal relationship with me. And then secondly, he mentions here to the overcomers that they will receive a white stone, he says, with a new name written on it. Now, in the, in the tradition of the priestly garments back in this time, the, priest, the high priest would wear a vestment, and in the vestment, there were two particular stones called the Urim and the Tumim. And, and before the giving of the Holy Spirit, the way that the high priest would discern the will of God in the Old Testament was to reach into his vestment. So, so let's say they were faced with this question and, and he was trying to discern, yes, Lord, or no. Should we do this? Should we not? The high priest would put his hand into his vestment, and take out one of the two stones. Now, tradition says that the Urim was a white stone, the Tumim was a black stone, and if he pulled out the white stone, the Urim meant yes or acceptable, the Tumim meant no uh, or not acceptable, and that's the way they would often make decisions, okay? Now we have the Holy Spirit, so don't go flipping a coin, all right? I mean, if you... If you if, you know, I, I hear people from time to time say, well, I'm just going to kind of roll the dice on that, I'm going to flip a coin, I'm just going to... I had a lady one time say to me, you know, we made a decision to come to Cornerstone because we as a family flipped a coin. I said, really? I mean, she was being, she was being completely honest with me. Nobody here, I'm not trying to offend him. This is like 20 years ago. That's how they decided. I said, you know, I hope that, I hope the Lord guides you better than just the flipping of a coin. We actually have the Holy Spirit now. But anyway, back in the day, that's how they would make decisions. And God would use it to help instruct them. So one of the concepts behind the idea of a white stone with a new name on it is the idea that you are accepted. God is saying yes to you. You are accepted in the beloved. In fact, in Ephesians 1.6, Paul would write to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And then it adds that on that white stone, there will be a new name just for you. Now, this is fascinating because, again, these are spiritual principles for all of us, not just unique to the church of Pergamos. What God is telling us is that there will come a day when every single one of us who know Christ as Savior will be issued a new name. And that name presently is only known by Jesus. Now, you may like the name that your parents gave you, or you may not like it, okay? But the fact is, whether you like it or don't, your natural given name you're going to be renamed by Jesus. And it really is a statement of his affection. Because you know how it is that when you are really fond of someone or you really love someone, you often give them a nickname, don't you? You know, Pooh Bear, you know, right? All that kind of stuff. Hey, Pooh Bear, you know, whatever. So um, when you have a nickname for someone, it's often a sign of affection. That's the concept here. That Jesus wants us to know just how much he loves us by giving us a new name that is unique to the way that he sees us. I don't know, have you ever stopped to wonder, like, what will that name be? You know how there were different times in the Bible that God changed people's names. Remember um, Jacob, 
Yaakov, meaning deceiver, and God wrestled with him literally and changed his name to Israel, meaning governed by God. He gave him a new identity and a new name. And so the Bible says this, one day we will be given a white stone with a new name, presently known only by Jesus, just to be able to identify his affection for you and for me. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Revelation again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary through his Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or you can download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. It's a great way to have a quiet time anytime. You'll find a link on our website, along with more information about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, we'd love to meet you. Come visit us. You'll find service times and more information about Cornerstone Chapel at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd be honored to do that for you. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners. So send us a quick email and we'll get back to you soon. Prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Put a marker where we left off in this final book of the Bible and make plans to join Pastor Gary next time for more right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, but still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.